0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just sixty bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent and Richard Amofa from The Athletic. Life comes at you fast in the Premier League. Only one game in and Manchester United are on the back foot. Obvious weaknesses have not been addressed and the club is blaming fans for getting carried away with transfer speculation. Really? I know there were mitigating factors for that desultory defeat against Palace. A truncated pre-season... Players in quarantine. It was, after all, their first defeat in 15 Premier League games. But perception is more powerful than reality, and the perception
2: is that Manchester United are not behaving like a big club. Do you understand that, Migs? Yeah, uh, for a few reasons, actually, even beyond what we've been discussing as regards transfers. I, I do think it was a bit—I don't know if "petty" is the right word—but you can't, in previous kind of investor calls or whatever talk about your social media interaction and I think there was one reference about every time United are linked to a player who creates all this buzz on social media or how many interactions the signing of Igalo made and the other side of that complain about what essentially is social media buzz except in the opposite direction about transfers I do still think that's kind of mostly fairly irrelevant noise especially look at Liverpool as well I mean they up until a few days ago their own fans are being just as agitated and then they, they, they went and, and pressed the button on two signings I think the biggest reason, and I've discussed this in the pod before, but the biggest reason United aren't behaving like a big club is because they're taking a punt on a manager who may or may not be up to it. We shouldn't really be figuring that out as he is two years in to the, one of the biggest jobs in football. And, and this is the thing, while, while I do think United's squad needs work, they need greater strength and depth, they arguably need two top players to challenge for the title, they're still much better than Crystal Palace. They still have a much better squad than Crystal Palace. They've got a much better squad than most of Europe, regardless of of some issues within it. That shouldn't really be an explanation for not just getting beaten on Saturday, because that can happen, but also the performance where it was just so flat. So once, once again, kind of lacking an idea and doesn't exactly kind of dispel these arguments that Solskjaer is at best a streaky manager, that the team is good and they're fully fit and on form because they can run around a lot and their better players can apply themselves. But once they drop off form or aren't quite at their sharpest, they've got no idea of football to fall back on. They're fairly clueless, to be honest. And, and that came across again on Saturday.
1: Yeah, I suppose what we're looking at here, Richard, is the impact of more successful transfer windows at their rivals. You know, I'll take Miggs's point about the limitations and inexperience of, of Solsiar. What about team strengthening? You know, It looks like Borussia Dortmund are playing them perfectly with regards to Jadon Sancho. Where would you think they need to strengthen?
3: I feel that, of course, that right-wing position, of course, needs strengthening, you mentioned Sancho there. But um, I still feel United need another top-quality defensive midfielder. We saw during the game against Palace, although... United on paper much better than Palace but how poor is the midfielder was and how on the transition Palace were able to just run through United and probably could have scored more if it wasn't for last-ditch interceptions and last-ditch tackles so although Magic has done well in that position you know you kind of looking long term has he got the mobility to really dominate it over the next couple of years and the centre-back is of course a big issue as well Maguire, Lindelof-Axis yes you can turn around and say that they conceded the third least goals in the Premier League last season. But the same mistakes are happening time and time again. They're not quick enough. Lindelof especially is probably not strong enough, as we saw for the goal. Easily rolled there. And and probably left back as well. Although Luke Shaw, you know, been with with United for a while now and he is missed when he's not there, purely down to Williams just being inexperienced. But again, similar issues. Falling asleep at the back post is something which he's done a few times now. We saw when Ayu had the ball on the left hand side that he was going to drill it across goal, and most top quality fullbacks would have been there to to clear it out of play. He wasn't there. Ultimately, Townsend went in and scored. And again, these issues aren't being addressed. And you'd like to see, from a United fans' perspective, anyway, that those positions will be strengthened before the end of the window.
1: Yeah. Do, do you think, Megs, that you know? Okay, we're in the age now where transfers are now central to marketing. As a case in point, Gareth Bale going to Spurs. And on Bale, do you think United missed the trick by not going for him?
2: Mm, maybe it was a short-term deal because they are obviously, I mean, someone who can play as a wing forward is one of their priority positions. We've seen that. That's illustrated by the fact that they've been so intent on Sancho. But I can actually see the logic, to be fair, in United not spending, or not being not putting so much of the budget towards a 31-year-old 30, where, as good as he is, there are a few doubts about uh, whether he has the same physical capacity. You know, part, Now, this is partly due to the manager, but he never played more than 30 games in a, se- in a league season at Real Madrid since 2014, I think it is. Uh, so I, c- I can't see the logic there. Uh, but at the same, and I, su- I suppose they have been burnt in that regard before and that, to a certain degree, you could see some parallels between the Sanchez transfer and the Gareth Bale transfer. Um, although, and I, I wonder, given Manchester United's resources, would Real Madrid have been so likely, say, to fund as much of the transfer as they have with Spurs, or as much of the wages? I think you will have a really good short-term impact, Bale. He's still an absolutely quality player. But yeah, for that what I have to say, I can see the logic in United not spending. Uh, and why am I... And because they do want a long-term wing on It's not like Spurs just bringing in, a star because there's a bit of opportunity there. United do do want a winger for that position for some time. So we can see the logic in them trying to get one in or concentrating on that. Mm. Well, I suppose, you know, if you look at it, Bale
1: is unlikely to play for a month, but he's already done his job initially in just raising the spirits. That theoretical front three, Richard, Son, Kane and Bale, in the short term that has huge potential, doesn't it? And you only have to see
3: the way that uh, Son and Kane played on uh, Sunday. Absolutely. you just taking the words out of my mouth there. I mean, they, they were devastating on Sunday, weren't they? Um, you know, with Kane dropping off and uh, Son's pace getting in behind and, and the finishing was just exceptional. So to add Bale to that as well and the quality that, that he's got in front of goal and just in and around the pitch as well um, does take their team up a level for sure. We're looking at you know, there's a lot of talk about Mourinho wanting
1: to get Jesse Lingard in, and you know that would obviously probably be dependent on uh, Deli Ali uh, leaving. Um, Migs, do you think um,
2: Ali's had a bit of a raw deal there? I think it is quite an amazing and a quick turnaround, given. Like, I, I, I was around Spurs a lot the week Mourinho was appointed. I was there for the big press conference, the first game back against West Ham, the first European game, and one of the big themes of that week was. Mourinho was going to unlock Deli Alli. This is going to be his big project. Um, so that seems to have abandoned quite quickly. And now I suppose we've had a few little clues to that in the uh, in the Amazon documentary, or sorry, adver, Amazon advertorial. Should I say? I wouldn't call it a documentary. Um, <laughs> I think one of the, some of the other clues as well. He's not been in the
1: squad for two games. Well,
2: yeah, exactly. That, that that being the big. Well, I suppose the reasons for that in terms of he thinks Deli Alli is a lazy trainer. Now, now to be fair, while. The immediate inclination in this situation would be to, you know, say it's typical Mourinho in terms of kind of. So, once again, he's targeting a high profile player. The reality here, a bit, is that Deli Ali's problems really precede Mourinho. And that's even illustrated by the fact he, we were talking about how uh, Mourinho could be the manager to unlock him. Uh, and, and he feels as if, since maybe his 2018 World Cup, he's got himself into a bit of a funk that we can't. That, he hasn't really snapped out of for any kind of length of time yet, um. So I mean, it, 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 he could be in a situation where he could just do it a change for something a bit different, um. But so I suppose it's two ways. I mean, I suppose you could say the same with the Pogba situation as well. His, his problems preceded Mourinho, but Mourinho really really honed in on him as well. Yeah, I suppose. Talk
1: about Delhi going perhaps to PSG. Can I just focus on the other side of of that? Um, Uh, discussion uh, Richard Jesse Lingard he's been one of sort of Manchester United's lost boys over the last six to nine months hasn't he is he also one who needs a move
3: I think so I I, I know you know he's had a difficult time off the pitch as well as on the pitch of course and um, sometimes as as you said you know sometimes you just need that, that change of scenery change of dynamic which could reinvigorate you. We know what Lingard can bring when he's on form. You know, he's got great energy. He, he presses high. He works well for the team, something that Mourinho likes. And he did feature a lot when when Mourinho was at the club. So I could see him slotting in at Spurs and doing okay, to be fair to him. Um, again, just giving them the energy that he needs. He wouldn't be a starter, of course. But, you know, when they're chasing a game or, or even, you know, looking to to uh, kind of run right like they did yesterday. You know, his energy can definitely bring a different dimension to the team. Um, And and as I said, you know, a a change of scenery, change of direction could could do him good. Um, I'm a bit fearful of swap deals uh, from a United perspective. If you're looking at Sanchez and Mkhitaryan, both in similar scenarios where their careers were going um, a bit on the wayside there. Um, So, you know, for example, with Delhi. Ellie was to join United. I can see a similar thing happening there. Um, I don't really see the impact that he would have, to be fair. So, um, but I, I think Lingard could do well at Spurs, should that go through.
2: Just on Lingard, the, the one thing I was going to say, I think he actually could fit, especially if what seems likely to happen, Mourinho play, basically plays a team where seven of the outfield players are, have largely <laughs> more rigid defensive duties, and then this three in attack are just released... Uh, which would be Bale, Kane, and Son, and especially given you'd imagine Lingard would be the player behind Kane in that situation, uh, and we all know Mourinho most of all he likes players that diligently follow orders, and and Lingard will do that uh, while being capable. Well, he has a bit of a nose for goal himself, despite some of those stats last season in what was a difficult period for him personally. But the the evidence is there from prior to that when he when he was actually on form. So from, from for that reason, I do think it actually he can work out quite well as long as. Mourinho is some way happy in that job, and the the usual problems don't come up. Mm, Don't hold your breath on that
1: one, but we'll see. We'll see. I suppose what we're seeing here is the dynamics of the top four, top six, top ten shifting as additions occur to individual squads. I suppose Liverpool's the perfect example of that, as you said earlier, Migs. You know they pressed the button on two big signings. Richard, just want to dwell on you know the most obvious one of those, Tiago. You know he slotted in immediately, didn't he? Against Chelsea, coming on at half time, the the speed of vision, the ease on the ball.
3: Out of all the players who've come in, he made an absolute, in instant impact, didn't he? He, he was brilliant, and something that I guess we probably all expected, but um, as you say, he slotted in perfectly. I think it was. 75 passes um, since after he came on at half-time, which is just phenomenal. And what he does bring to Liverpool is just, again, it gives them a different dimension. We know that they're they're the front three that they normally go... Sorry, I say front three. They're midfield three, I should say, in big games. Very, you know, high-octane, high-pressing, high-energy. He gives them a different dimension that he can keep the ball, he can find spaces, he can create little pockets for his teammates to, to, to run riot almost. And... I think yesterday, him coming on at half time would have been so demoralising for Chelsea. I mean, as I say, they just went down to 10 men at a key moment just before half time there. And his introduction was almost a message to say, don't think that you're going to get back into this game because it's going to be hard enough with 10 men anyway, but then you're not going to get the ball because Thiago keeps it so well. I think it was a great statement of intent from Liverpool to bring him on at that time, not just to Chelsea, but to the rest of the Premier League to say, look, you know we we can change the game by bringing on players like Thiago. We've got different options now. And um, I think it will be. It really does change the dynamic in terms of, as you say, before these signings came in, a lot of the fans were on their case saying, you know, where are the signings coming in? We need to build on last season. I think him alone has helped to transform that feeling. And um, I, I find it difficult, or I see it difficulty in Manchester City overtaking him now. Yeah, well, it has changed the tenor
1: of the debate, hasn't it, Mick? Because I, to be perfectly honest, thought Manchester City would probably just have just enough uh, over Liverpool. But I've changed my mind perfectly honestly on that. You look at Thiago, as Richard said, give them such an extra dimension. Does this have a decisive effect on the title race, do
2: you think? Well, I'm the exact same as you. I wrote in my... uh, When we had to do our Premier League predictions for the Independent two weeks ago... I had Man City. And I kind of deliberated about that because I just th- like, uh, I think there's go- there was going to be such little difference between them this season. Uh, not because of any particular statement that City made, although I think they have, the signings they made have been shrewd rather than kind of game changing. But I just thought there was a danger that Liverpool, after kind of two and a half years, of this relentless pace, and given like what the, the general theory about a third season. And kind of a certain staleness could have could have drifted in, with, without anything different, and that would maybe put them in a situation like Manchester City last season, where although when on form or when in a good game they're still brilliant, they just have that capacity for drop-offs or that opposition have worked them out a bit more, because you know they've been facing this team for so long. Whereas Thiago does two, he changes two things in that regard, he refreshes the team, so kind of puts off the staleness kind of mentally, because he just offers something different, and because he's such a prominent player. And he also gives them something very different in terms of uh, how they play and offers that. Well, I mean, he, he's exactly the type of midfielder they've lacked. Uh, and you could see that yesterday, I suppose, with all these stats doing the round about his, uh, his passing and the, the number he played. But really, that was representative of the kind of control he had in the game. And it's for that reason, I actually, I mean, I, I was at Stamford Bridge on Sunday and it, the utter confidence running through Liverpool, almost personified by him in the second half, was really, really striking. And I'm suddenly thinking, looking at them, and bar the intensity of the schedule, I do wonder whether they could be in for another really high points return season. Because they just like, there was never a sense yesterday that they're going to mess this game up, even when they gave away the penalty. Um, they just They just looked so good. Yeah, I think you know
1: the standards that they've set are amazing. But yeah, they, you do see them meeting them yet again. Uh, I suppose the other thing about them is that uh, within the squad there are there is still a lot of versatility. And I suppose that versatility is is embodied by Fabinho. I thought he was terrific at the centre of defence. That is a, uh, the hallmark of a, quite a modern player, isn't it,
3: Rich? Absolutely, because I think when we saw the lineup and saw Fabiano lining up there, um, you know, the questions were asked. You know, is how will he cope with the pace of, of Werner? But um, as you say, he he coped really well. Um, and you say, obviously, quality on the ball so helps them from, build possession from the back as well. And I think, you know, especially in the team like Liverpool now, who are looking to control games, of course, with the introduction of Thiago as well, having that versatility and him being able to drop in there, play out from the back, but also, you know, be a safe option back there as well. Again, it just maximises their options and, and makes them such a, a difficult uh, team to contend with. But, but actually, the
2: Fabinho issue, actually, is also one reason, I think, why... Liverpool could, there, there is a possibility they could win the, the title quite comfortably again. And we were discussing this after the game yesterday. If you look, the way modern centre-halves are coached and what's expected of them, they have so much to do now. that it's, it's very, very difficult for any centre-half to be a sturdily reliable player who just cuts out things in the way Van Dijk is, and in, the, in that old-fashioned way that we used to associate with, with centre-halves. They've got almost too much to concentrate on, particularly you know, being forced, not being forced, but being expected to start moves. So it's very difficult to find that sort of player. Uh, and Now, one, one of the reasons that Manchester City, why you have some doubts about him, is because with company gone, they still haven't found that sort of player, bar, bar Laporte to a certain degree. But he's not qu- quite the same as that. Well, And one of, one of the, the big targets still this summer, or this window, should I say, now we're in late September, is um, is a centre-half of, of that type. Whereas Liverpool now, potentially, they've already definitely got one in Van Dijk, but if they maybe have a second in Fabinho, given the way he cut out Werner twice, I mean, it's another it's, it's, it's massive advantage for them. And there's it, and one, one big thing where you see them have a significant, significant advantage over Man City.
3: Yeah,
1: let's look at Chelsea, uh, Rich. You know, it's to be expected that Frank Lampard made sympathetic noises about Kepa. Um, after the
3: game, but but surely he can't select him again, can he? No, I, I think it will be really difficult for him to come back from that. I, I mean, to be fair, I was surprised that uh, he even started the game. Um, I thought it'd be a case of okay, let him start the season, one mistake, and and will uh, we'll, you know he'll will be changed. But um, you know, especially after you know against Brighton, should have saved that uh, Tossard strike, and again yesterday. He, he, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's 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 obviously his confidence is is rock bottom. But I mean, the, these are basic errors which he's making on a consistent basis now. And of course, Lampard will defend him, but he will be so keen to get um, another goalkeeper. in. I know uh, Edward Mendy is very close to joining now, and he he'll be he'll be desperate to get that one over the line just to change things because having having a weak goalkeeper it minimises confidence around the pitch. You see, you know, when when the uh, back four is, is shaky, it's often because there is a shaky goalkeeper behind them. And I think just getting that safe pair of hands in will, will change everything, uh, you know, across the pitch. The back four will be more confident. And again, players high up the pitch will be more willing to take risks, knowing that if they lose the ball, they have that protection behind them. So um yeah I think I think once the new uh, the new goalkeeper comes in uh, we'll definitely see Kepa sidelined and I think that might be it for his uh, Chelsea career.
1: What was the political mu- music like uh, down at the bridge Megs you know you you wrote a very extensive very impressive piece about uh, Abramovich and his approach to the club. You've got Peter Peter Check there who one would imagine is is hands on in in the goalkeeping situation and probably has quite an extensive influence at the club
2: yeah um, I suppose at the moment given their signing Mendy they do uh, look to be backing uh, Lampard on this I mean there's been, there's been a few murmurs of extensive discussions about Kepa over the last f- few months especially given Lampard has made it very clear um, not often true his statements but more I suppose through his attitude and true the fact he's dropped them so often <laughs> uh, that he, that he, he's not much of a fan and given given these costs so much, one of Chelsea's one of Chelsea's most shrewd elements in the market these days is how much they protect their assets. And so, I mean, say with with, with Kepper, if they can't sell him, there's no way that there's no way they're going to do a Gareth Bale on it and kind of just let him go. What what they'll probably do is um, some a, a loan deal, probably to maybe a, a lower tier Spanish club, maybe kind of a, a Sevilla. Where he can restore his confidence. It has worked for him in the past. And then and it works, out with Fernando Torres, and then through that, recoup some value in the player. Um, but I do think there's questions to be asked of Lampard in this as well. In terms of, I mean, I remember hearing from Guardiola before, he basically had this theory that, um, and this is relevant to his own keeper situation with Claudio Bravo, where once a goalkeeper makes a mistake or suffers a few jitters early on, at a big club it's very difficult for them to recover and be you know the decisive number one because there's always that undercurrent there there's always that kind of that, that doubt that, and they almost need to change to dispel it and that was pretty much why he acted decisively on Bravo and um, brought in a- Edison and, and that situation when you can see you can see with Kepa he's He's almost always in the... You you can't feel fully comfort at the moment. You you feel he's going to make a mistake in possibly any moment. And it's almost like, as with yesterday, as with the first half when he came charging out for Salah, he's finding new ways to make mistakes as well. But in that situation, when he's already agitated, he's not going to feel any more assured when it's known that his manager is trying to bring in a replacement. And even for a match as recent as the cup final, he wasn't deemed good enough and Willy Caballero was started. So in, in that context... Why does Lampard start him? I think, I think there's a fair question to be asked there and whether Lampard could have played this maybe a little bit differently. And it certainly felt odd to play Kepper in a game like yesterday, which bar won against Manchester City would probably be uh, Keppers or any Chelsea goalkeeper's busiest of the season when he's about to bring in a new goalkeeper. I thought it was quite significant, Rich, when uh, he
1: was asked about Callum Hudson-Odoi. Frank Lampard simply said he's got to work harder. Obviously, messages like that will resonate around the dressing room. Given the situation that that Frank finds himself, he does need to be
3: assertive, doesn't he? A hundred percent. And I think the the message he gave to Hudson Odoi is similar to kind of his career, really. I mean, Lampard, of course, very talented midfielder, but. If you hear all the anecdotes from his teammates and, and even managers, the first thing they say is how hard he worked at training, after training, you know, doing extra runs and working on his game. And that's what he wants to see in Hudson-Odoi. We, see, we know that Hudson-Odoi has the quality, we know he's a talented young player, but you're not going to maximise that if you don't work hard and I think having Lampard as a manager is really going to try and instill those values in him if you look at uh, compare him to Mason Mount for example you know he's a player of course another talented player from the academy but a key part of his almost armoury is his work rate and what he gives to the team and that probably is why Mount stayed on as opposed to Havertz yesterday when Christensen was sent off. You know, we know, of course, Mount can offer a lot to the team, but it it is his work rate that sets him apart from a lot of other players. And, you know, these young players know, as I mentioned, I think, on the last pod that I was on, that with the influx of talent coming in, they're going to need to offer something different to to stay in the team. It's a new challenge for them. And at the moment, we see that Mount has risen to that challenge by purely his work rate. Whereas Hudson-Odoi needs to match that if he's going to get anywhere near the starting lineup or even the squad uh, this season.
1: Yeah, you can see one or two beginning to drift to the margins there, can't you? You know, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, for instance, wasn't in, involved in the match day squad on Sunday. Um, Migs, how much time does uh, w- or will uh, Lampard be given to bed in new players? You know, it was an understandable principle, but not a great look, that they had to sub uh, Havertz at half-time.
2: Yeah, uh, well, I suppose this also feeds into the bigger question on Chelsea right now, which is how much time Lampard will be given. Full stop. I mean, you know, everyone, you know, er- everyone thinks basically he's the golden child, one of uh, Abramovich's favourite players when Lampard was a player. Uh, but Avram Grant was one of his great friends, and he sacked him <laughs> quite quite rootlessly. And that's the other side of uh, expenditure this extensive that the owner usually expects a certain level and certain results. And so say it's an interesting one. Um, now, to be, to be fair to Lampard, I think it was probably circumstances that dictated yesterday that Havertz was used as, you know, it was, it, it was almost a classic kind of big man striker role more than anything, which, which is kind of, which felt odd for a player so talented. But I think that was just due maybe to his own physical situation and the fact he was, he was he was late playing in Europe with Leverkusen and also um, the type of game they played against Liverpool, which was understandable, at least given the team Liverpool are. But um, say we're a month in and we haven't seen the kind of the big new signings, Chelsea performance that y- you would expect. Then yeah, but see you like pr- pressure could start to grow a bit?
1: Yeah, I suppose it's the nature of modern football, isn't it, Rich? That judgments are instant and tend to be unflattering if you don't do what you what is expected of you. What are your first impressions of of both um,
3: Havertz and Werner? I've been impressed by Werner in terms of the fact that he is a, you know, he offers a lot of pace in the, in the side, and you can clearly see he's a threat. I, I do feel a bit I'm not sorry for him, but in the sense that in the first couple of games anyway, that he was pretty much working by himself. So they're going to need to work that out quickly in terms of how to. You know, improve the cohesion and 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 get the ball to him. He did have that chance, didn't he? Where he was through on goal yesterday, but his first touch took him inside. And maybe a more confident. Maybe when once he gets more into his stride, you know, he takes it on his left foot because if he goes further away from the defender, he's not going to get caught, and he probably slots that in a bottom corner. So there's improvements there, of course, but you can see that there's a player there, 100%. Um, and with with, with Havertz. He hasn't um, hit the ground running, which what you'd expect a player of his quality and price tag would have done. You can see that, of course, you know his obvious quality is there. But um, you know, I guess for the factors that that uh, Miguel outlined, maybe that's why he hasn't kind of hit the ground running as as you would have hoped. But um, I think once he gets into his strides, builds up his fitness, you you can see that there's a there's a quality player there.
1: Yeah, Manchester City, because, you know, there's been a dis- delayed start to the season. They they have their first game uh, on Monday night at Wolves. Uh, has there been a sense that they've been bypassed in any sense? And I also want to focus on a player who's left them, uh, Leroy Sane.
2: Do you think he might embarrass them at uh, Bayern? Uh, potentially, given he's all the suggestions are he's going to be one of the best players in the world. In the next few years. Now, in term, in a purely positional sense and what the team lacks, I think Ferran Torres could replicate what Sane did. And and he, and he gives it he gives City some pace that it did maybe lack at times last season. It was always a different weapon for, for Guardiola. Um for, to be fair to City from the other side, I think there was some agitation with Sane by the ends. I mean there was there were stories about him being repeatedly late for training and all this sort of thing. Uh, but they did try their hardest to keep him. Um, and I think his his quality isn't in doubt. Uh, but, but, I mean, the one thing I would say is that City's problems or, or, or team issues are more in other areas. Well, you would still obviously benefit from a player like Sané.
1: Yeah, so they're at Wolves. Um, it looks like they're going the whole hog and playing in Portugal kit, given the, one of their <laughs> many launches last week. What about Nelson Samedo? It looks like he's going to come in from Barcelona,
3: doesn't it, Rich? Yeah, and again, you know, someone to replace Matt Doherty, of course. We, you know, we know where he can offer the sides. Uh, obviously, great pace. is really good going forward. And I expect him to, to slot in quite seamlessly, to be fair. And what and about... He, uh, his, 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 his agent is... Who's that again? Samedo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: on that point, you know, do Wolves need to be careful to avoid... Betraying the traditions of what is a fable club, but at its heart, a
2: pretty blue-collar type of club. It's an odd one, yeah. Um, I mean, since we've got to be careful how we put this, there are so many Mendes players either coming in or out. I would say it's rare that you see a club have this extensive relationship with an agent. Obviously, a lot of agents are, you know, they they they're, they have good. You know, in the last de- two decades, with the kind of the rise of the super agent, uh, there are de- there are agents that have had you know strong relationships with close, and so much business goes through one player. I'd say it's rare, except uh, just when I, <laughs> only last week when I was doing um, research for a uh, Abramovich piece, I was reading over the, the Diego Torres book at uh, on, on Josie Mourinho's time at Real Madrid, and even there, re- repeatedly in those pages. There are questions raised from people in Madrid about why Mourinho was trying to sign so many Mendez players, and he meant the Mendez players uh, involved in the team. So, the extent of it and just how striking it is. Uh, but hasn't, I'm, I'm, but hasn't football, you know, to you know, play devil's advocate there to
1: a degree, hasn't football always operated on a mateship system, a networking process that, okay, it is marked. But it's understandable, and it's modern football, and it's modern
2: business. Well, to a degree, but then this is the sort of thing we're meant to be moving away from, where you know rec- rec- recruitment approaches have, have become, you know, in most cases, so much more advanced, so much more based on analytics. And and this this is one of the kind of big big questions at Arsenal, which is why suddenly things look a lot better there. Well, I mean, a lot of that was down to Arteta, but it was one of the big recent debates where uh, Raúl Leahy had supposedly. Moved the club away from a more analytics-based recruitment system from Sven Mislintat, um, to one based on kind of relationships with agents and agents, uh, like as you say, the old networking approach. But with with, with Sanehi going, um, I think it looks like they're going to have a bit of a, a reversion again, um, and, and I, I think I think that's that's why Wolves is all the more striking because even even though of course they have their own analytical approach, it's it's a much more network-based recruitment system than well pretty much any other club yeah at the moment any, any, any pretty much any other big club at the moment when we got Arsenal
1: at the forefront of our minds rich winning when playing badly which is probably a decent summary of the the, the win over West Ham at the weekend is that
3: a signal that they've made
1: a step forward?
3: I think so, because we we know Arsenal from for years gone by, when they haven't been performing, they often do go on to, to drop points. Uh, obviously, conversely, when they are on, on, on fire, they, they are really attractive to watch. Um, so I think that probably could, you know, could probably read into why Arteta was so happy after the game, because... You know, in years gone by, they would have ended up drawing that game. And we, we know that the discontent that um, kind of circulates around the club when there is a negative result, even though it is only um, game two. So the fact that they've been able to start uh, to maintain their 100% record, the fact that they've seen out a game which, yes, they, they probably were expected to win anyway, but they have gone and, and got the game, um, you know, uh, got the points and, and got the points in the bag. It is, is a good sign of things to come. Uh, we, you know, we can see Arteta's really, you know, put his, his stamp on the team. You can see a style of play emerging, which is encouraging for them. But, of course, they're not always going to be able to do that. So, you know, in times where you're going to need to show grit, determination um, and, and, and good character, um, I thought I that like they did that very, very well and, and, and got the win. So it's looking positive for them, I think.
1: Yeah, I think we'll obviously find out a lot more next Sunday when they're at Anfield. Um, I just want to look at Leicester, who've begun with two fairly emphatic wins, Migs. The model they've got, got—you know, they've raised more than £200 million in the last two years. Does that have limitations? And and I suppose what I'm getting at is what do you think this season's success is
2: going to look like for Brendan Rodgers? I think if they can break top six again, it's a very successful season. And, and it's, it's something we do forget about last year. Although because they've been in the top 3 for so long and at one point looked like even the closest challengers to liverpool it, it, it all felt so disappointing because they dropped away so much yet when you stand back for leicester to finish top 5 is actually hugely impressive now as regards the kind of 200 million they brought in the the proof of or the proof of recent history is that you can't be completely dependent on player sales because ultimately you're not going to have, keep having hit after hit after hit and certainly not kind of like 50 million to 80 million pound hits in the, way, in the way Leicester have. So you do have to have some contingency plans. But at the same time, the excellence of their recruitment has given them a very vibrant team and also basically, regardless of, of their wider ambitions, you know, safeguarded the, the medium-term financial future of the club <laughs> purely through sales. And that, and that, of course, now in a... In a COVID dictated time, where um, revenue streams are suddenly that bit more limited, um, so it has been very short. And of course, they should continue this approach, but not not necessarily be so reliant on it. I mean, there's there's not too many clubs like Manchester United that are going to play pay eighty million for your centre half in that way. But but yeah, but and I, I I do think that if they can break top six, it's actually another really upwardly mobile, excellent season. Perhaps they have bigger designs again.
1: Yeah, well, they've certainly won more points every season. I just want to look at Everton when when, uh, Miggs was talking about uh, recruitment there. uh, You spoke earlier on, Rich, about the bale son Kane axis. What about a front three of James, Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison at Everton? That has got real potential, hasn't it?
3: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very exciting trio. Um, of course, we know about the um, the quality that, that James Rodriguez brings to the side and Vishalison's raw pace and energy. And, um, of course, Calvert-Lewin, whose game has really come on leaps and bounds over the past 18 months, two years. Um, of course, you know, we love his his work rate and the fact that he, he, he gives centre-backs a, a, a really torrid and difficult time. But now the fact he's added in all kinds of goals, really. Uh, you know, the fantastic header last week, and and uh, of course, you know, getting the hat trick against West Brom. I think I'm a big fan of a striker who who is impactful in the six yard box, and a lot of his goals do come within that area. It's always sniffing out chances. He, he's always there, which is a great asset to have, and it, it it it's taken Everton to another level because I think last season they were a bit stale. You know, the likes of uh, Sigurdsson and and Bernard, you know, not really living up to their expectation. I think their signings this summer have really taken them to another level. You look at their midfield as well, you know, the the trio that they've got in there of the Corey, Alan uh as well. Um I, I think it, it has taken them to another level and they're definitely a team to watch. I'm not sure whether they'll be able to break into the top six, but I think they have a, a big chance. To, they can definitely apply a lot of pressure in that in that regard.
1: Yeah, well, I'll put my hands up at this point. I had Hamez as my flop of the season, and okay, it's only two games, and we we yet to work out whether he can sustain it. But his quality is obvious. I I was really intrigued about you know, the whole team dynamic that's going on at Everton. Um, Migs, you know, when you get someone like Seamus Coleman, who's a pretty solid citizen and been around the block more than a few times. I, he was talking about the impact of, you know, really good experienced players like James. The, the impact that he has on other players, just through his sense of calmness, that's actually an overlooked point, isn't it? In terms of team building, the chemistry, the human chemistry of it.
2: Yeah, completely. And I, rem- I remember hearing w- one of the principals of Barcelona for a long time, when they were at their best was not just to have good players in your, in your team, but actually have players who improve those around them. And that was, that was seen as crucial. And obviously, and I think there was some argument about like the critical mass of players like that you should have, which is between five and seven. So say that, that Barcelona 2011 team, I think they had something like nine or 10 of those players. <laughs> but James is very evidently that. I, I, the one thing I would say, I would will, I will still have general questions about Everton's recruitment approach and this applies to the manager as well because think when, when you're a club in their situation who well, what are they trying to do above anything they're basically trying to cut the gap between themselves and the big six and the big six have more money that's what it, com- that's what it comes down to despite Everton's expenditure they have more money and they're more attractive uh, to to the absolute top players Um so the, the, the way to get around that, I mean, I remember Ferran Soriano once talking about this, that when you're trying to catch up with someone who's of a, of a similar kind of pace or quality to you, you can't basically follow their path, which I suppose is trying to sign players from the same market. You've got to think a little bit differently. And the way to do that is usually to get ahead of the game and to sign the next best thing in terms of either managers or players, and that, and that might mean an acceptance that you're going to be a stepping stone for a while. But you can lift yourself, as we've seen through Leicester, as we've seen through Borussia Dortmund. Uh, so we still have questions with Everton's, Everton's approach there. And it, it sometimes feel the club is still a little bit seduced by just big or expensive names being willing to join them. In saying that, though, I do think James himself is almost... He could well be a perfect fit. Because also one of the issues he's had for the last few years is that, well, he's an excellent player. He hasn't quite been good enough for a Real Madrid to build a team around him in the way when he's at his best, because he is a playmaker. I mean, Madrid weren't going to do that. Bayern Munich weren't going to do that to the same degree, but Everton will. Everton will put him exactly where he's been, absolutely brilliant for Colombia and at his best. So from that perspective, even though I'd have general questions about Everton, I think James could work out very well. You've got at Everton, Rich.
1: You know, it looks like that they, they want to get rid of almost an entire team just to start to balance the books. Um, any potential bargains in that sort of clear out? And do you think that will set a standard maybe for the next couple of weeks with the with the window uh, running down that clubs will basically try and move on unwanted objects? If you say, if if I can put it like that.
3: No, absolutely. I think uh, currently it's been difficult for clubs to almost. Get rid of the the deadwood in inverted commas. Um, just obviously purely for you know financial implications, etc. But um, I do feel as you say teams will be looking to to get rid of these you know this kind of profile of player. And Everton do have uh, a lot of players kind of within that category. Looking at the likes of Firouzi. Again, he has underwhelmed there, but I think he could do a job for, for a lower, um, maybe a bottom half club perhaps. Because I think his game is based on confidence. And once, you know, if he's playing week in, week out, I think that he he can do well for a club, maybe a West Ham, for example. Tom Davis, again, is someone similar. Someone who burst into the scene has has the potential, but hasn't really hit the heights that we probably would have expected of him. But again, there is a, a, a good player there. Uh, and again, maybe he just needs a run of games in order to build up his confidence and, 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 and build up his fitness as well. And I can see him doing very well at, a, again, maybe a lower league club, maybe even in a championship. Just just to, again, just build up his confidence. But I, I do see him coming back to the Premier League should he go down. Um, but I think those two are ones who I know probably a few clubs would be looking at. Maybe Bernard as well. Um, maybe Yannick Balassi Again, someone who's... A confidence player of course we know he's blessed with great skill and great pace but probably he's going to see his chances limited so um I'd say those four would be would be the ones to look at maybe out the door this summer anyways um and perhaps Mohamed Besic as well again you know we know what he can bring to a team he's got good good grit good determination in his game not bad on the ball but um he's probably going to see his game time limited as well but he can definitely do a job um at maybe a bottom half side definitely our thoughts
1: for the day. Uh, Migs, you're thankfully never short of too many opinions.
2: Um, <laughs> what, what, what would you like to talk about, mate? I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I wonder whether how influential the intensity of this season is going to be. A, a, a rising issue in football, that I think I've written about a lot, is that it's, its inherent unpredictability has been eroded by financial gaps. Something we just touched on there, I suppose, We talk about Everton. And it's very difficult for clubs to get around this. Um, so on, on one level, I think a season like this where i looked at the stats when the fixture list came out, and I think if you're a top player, you've, if you're an international cap player, you've feasibly got a game every three days, which is absolutely remarkable. There's never been a schedule like it. There's no space at all. So if there's any sort of break, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see where, how, how they fit things around. Now, feasibly, you'd think that should prevent any club going in any sort of con- any really consistent run because it's going to be be too difficult to maintain that consistency over over a run of time uh, because there's just too much going on. The flip side I suppose is that never has there been a situation where squad depth is more important and it's what could be hugely influential for Chelsea in the long run and also why Liverpool's signings of Thiago and Hota were so important because this season is really going to test the limits of squad and of course who has the biggest squads, but the wealthiest clubs. So I think it's actually a little bit of a juncture campaign that way. It could end up, from a historical perspective, I mean, obviously COVID makes it that anyway, but it could also amplify other issues. That so This is a real kind of one of those landmark seasons we come to look on where it causes a few ripples and changes in the game. Yeah, I think the players can only take so much. Richard, what would you like to talk about?
3: I'm going to come from a slightly different angle uh, today, but uh, I'd like to speak about QPR. Um, And I know on Friday they they got a lot of uh, criticism, along with Coventry, for for not taking a knee before their their game. Um, And, you know, there was a big fallout from that. But I guess you're looking from the, the fence of QPR, you know, you look at the structure of the club. They are one of the most diverse clubs in the country you know say you've got les ferdinand as director of football you know obviously a big talking point is the lack of black coaches within the game they've got the likes of uh chris ramsey there got paul hall working with the academy and with all the work that qpr do within the community you know we look at the stuff that which they've done for grenfell and raising the money there you know naming the stadium after um after the Kind Prince Foundation, you know, a player I played with briefly uh, before he passed away, and again, th- these are all, all all actions. And I know football is, you know, doing a great deal to raise awareness of of the current issues we've, we've taken in knee, but we also know that football is notoriously bad for just making good statements, good gestures, and not really backing them up with actions. We know that QPR have backed there. Um, statements up with actions with with their um with what they've done over especially over the last couple of years and looking at where QPR are based you know within the heart of Shepherds Bush they are real stalwarts of their community a great community club so I think the criticism that they received on Friday was quite harsh but with with all of those factors that I've mentioned and I know Mark Warburton spoke about maybe looking for guidance from the EFL I do think that that is that is fair. Um, maybe the EFL should come out and say, Look, this is what we're going to do moving forward. But again, I mean, while I'm in favour of taking the knee and the uh, the kind of awareness that it highlights for for a lot of the issues going on at the moment, we just hope to see things backed up by with with real actions. And QPR have been a great example of that. So I do feel that the kind of criticism that came their way was was quite unfair uh, on Friday.
1: Yeah, well, I agree with that, you know, you only have to spend some time in the company of of Les and Chris to understand how deeply uh, they feel about the issue, understandably enough, but also how positive they are in terms of um, addressing that issue. You know, it's a a terrific club and you're right to point that out, I think, um, Richard. As for me, I suppose I'd better end with a confession. I was tempted, really tempted, to use this section to have yet another whinge about VAR, ridiculous handball laws, and Mike Reed's planet-sized ego. Instead, as the pandemic deepens, I'd like to focus on the positive and celebrate the game's humanity. Since lockdown, Gary Mabbott has spent two hours a day calling vulnerable Spurs fans. He's approaching 1,000 calls. He provides company, reassurance, and a link to the club. Football can be such a force for good, and I only wish we made more of that. So, thanks to Miguel and Richard for their insights and opinion, and as ever, to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.